Welcome to Life of the School, episode 15. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I am a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Every episode on Life of the School, I sit down with a fellow life science teacher, and I talk to them about how they got into teaching, what they're currently working on, and what they're excited for in the future. This episode, I sit down with Lee Ferguson. Lee is the lead APIB biology teacher at Allen High School in Allen, Texas. Lee is a passionate advocate for public education and regularly works to improve teaching and learning of biology both in Texas and nationally. In 2009, Lee helped write the current Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills, or TEKS, for biology. Lee received the Texas Outstanding Biology Teacher Award from the NABT in 2010. In 2012, Lee founded a professional learning community for AP biology teachers in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Lee is the incoming president for the Texas Association of Biology Teachers. Nationally, Lee has been an AP reader for College Board since 2006 and has presented workshops at the NABT Annual Professional Development Conference. She also is a contributing author to the Teacher's Edition for the AP Biology Textbook, Principles of Life, Second Edition. Lee also maintains the website The Biology Space, where she shares a wealth of classroom and other teaching resources. Lee earned her BA in Biology from Southwestern University in 1996, and her MAT in science education from the University of Texas at Dallas in 2008. You can follow Lee's musings about science, teaching, and life on Twitter at The Biospace. Welcome, Lee. Good morning. Good morning. So it's almost Happy New Year. Um, yes, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness. Although, I mean, 2016 wasn't terrible. It just seems that way <laughs> because of all the you know, you've had all these, you know, my friends and I were talking about this just the other day. We're of the age now that the celebrities that were that that were iconic when we were kids are now dying off. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it kind of forces you to look at your life and go, wow, I'm getting old. Yeah. <laughs> and so maybe that's why it seems so terrible. I mean, in other regards, it was actually a pretty good year. So yeah. but when you look at that, when you look at it through that lens, it doesn't seem so awesome. <laughs> Yeah, we're so we're this is going to come out mid January, but we are recording this uh, in the in the final days. We're recording this on December thirtieth, and um, so we have just had uh, the week of of Carrie Fisher uh, and and her mother Debbie Reynolds, yeah. and it's been one of those weeks where it's like you got to be kidding me, uh, kind of right. end of the year. Um, well, but, and then George Michael. Yeah, also. and George Michael earlier this week. I you know it's it's like almost hard to keep up at this point. Uh, yep. But you know it it is funny because you you do ask that question. You know I. I have uh, people will ask me, you know, who I don't see, you know, people who are not, you know, teacher friends or, or that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I think we've had a kind of a rough start to the school year at my personal school. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's just a lot of, uh, you know, unfortunate happenings school wide. Um, and I think mm-hmm. the tone of the school, particularly early in the year, it's gotten a lot better, but it was really rough. And so I'd run into friends who are not in the building and they'd be like, how are you doing? And I'm like, do you mean personally or do you mean like at my school? Because personally, things are great. Um, the school's on fire, but like, you know, the, but the, the personally things are going, turning up great. You know, everything was seemed to have a really good year. Uh, but it is, I do know what you mean by that dichotomy of you right. know, things going well, but at the same time having a, having a struggle. 
exactly. Well, and, you know, to speak to your point about the school year being at least a challenge, I know my school year has been somewhat challenging. We uh, we experienced a big transition in administration mm-hmm. back in February. Um, our previous principal had resigned and the circumstances were kind of shady. Nobody really knew why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we had an interim principal. Well, then our superintendent and our district's very small. I mean, we are a one high school town, mm-hmm. but we just happen to be the largest high school in the state. <laughs> um, so we operate as a very small school district about, and, and you have to understand in Texas, a very small school district, at least in this part of Texas, because yeah. the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area is the largest in Texas. Uh, we're about 18,000 students. Yeah. And so you know, the high school population is roughly one third of that. So to kind of give you an idea of the yeah. size of the campus, we, my campus alone is a, is a grades 10 through 12, and we've got roughly, you know, 4,900 students on campus. And so <laughs> it's, it's a big, it's a big place, but we, we operate with a very small field. And so when we have a shakeup in administration, even from the top down, it's, it's a big deal. And so our superintendent, our previous superintendent left in July, I believe. Um, and the reasons were the reasons that were given were were laid out very clearly. He left to go be with family. You know, mm-hmm. his last surviving parent was down near Houston and he wanted to go be with them. And so you can't fault him that. Yeah. Um, and so we had an interim superintendent up until actually we'll have an interim superintendent until Monday when our new one takes over. And so um you know, there's been a lot of transition with the new principal that we hired in the spring coming in, who's doing things very, very differently than our previous principal did. You know, there are a lot of people who are really unhappy with that. Um, I, for one, welcome change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm actually really excited to see some of the stuff that he's trying to implement. In fact, um, I want to say it was November, first part of November. He actually invited me to be a part of a team that uh, is composed of about 20 teachers and administrators and counselors from our campus and from the freshman center across the street, uh, looking at some some different things that we can do to kind of move us to the next level. We're all reading a book called uh, Whatever It Takes. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. I don't. Uh, but it's about, it's, it's basically a case study of two different campuses. One of them is uh, Stevenson High School up near Chicago, which we're actually going to go visit in March. And then the other school is, um, it's a middle school. And I'm, I'll be honest, I haven't read that far in the book yet. <laughs> I've only read the first four chapters because we, we're doing a book study. Mm-hmm. And so in preparation for this trip. And, you know, some of the things that they mention are things I'm like, oh, hey, these things would be great if we could do this. But what would this look like on my campus? My school is so big and we run this kind of schedule. And mm-hmm. and and so, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see how these things that he's wanting us to to examine and look at are going to eventually manifest themselves. Yeah. And so, I mean, and they're all in the in the best interest of students. I I get that, but we also have to remember you've got a faculty of three hundred and fifty who are who who are not of like mind. You know, they're they're mm-hmm. they're all going to have something different to bring to the table, and they're not all going to be willing to change. You know, even if it does mean that it's best for the students, they're not all going to be willing to change. So I'm I'm going to be really curious to see you know, how he tries to convince us all that these things are good, you know, <laughs> you know, and I, and it takes a, a certain type of leadership, <laughs> I think, to, to get everybody on the same page, or at least try to get everybody on the same page. Cause I don't think in a faculty that large, you're going to get 
everybody in agreement, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many of us, there's so very many of us. And so, you know, when people ask me about the size of my department, I'm like, oh yeah, there's 40 of us. They're like, what? Yeah, "Yeah, there are 40 of us. (laughs) Well, do you all ever meet at the same time? No, we don't. We can't. It's impossible. You know, it's, it's, so it's, it's, it's interesting working in in a school that large, you know, and talking with colleagues who don't work in schools that are nearly that size. There are very few of us that do. You know, so it's it's sort of a an, an interesting club to belong to when you when you work in a school that big, you know, you you and, and people always ask, well, how do you how do you handle the kids and and how do the kids not get lost? And 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 and, you know, we have ways of making sure that, you know, all the kids are, I guess, divided up in such a way that, you know, we have this school within a school concept where, you know, kids are assigned to a house Yep. And they're in that house the entire time they're on our campus, you know, so they've got the same principal, the same counselors, as long as those people don't change mm-hmm. uh, for the three years that they're on our campus. And so that's one way that we try to keep kids from slipping through the cracks. But again, because we are such a large school, there are some that do slip through, unfortunately. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, our principal has decided to take on this this book study and, and visit these campuses and and try to see, okay, where can we learn from these people? I mean, obviously they're doing something right. Where can we learn from that? And what can we do that and adapt to, to make fit for our kids and our community? Yeah, you know? it's, a, it's a very interesting conversation because I teach in what is considered a big school in a very different state. So my school is uh, 2,000, which I realize is, you know, like, you guys like lose 2,000 students like it's nothing uh, in Texas. That's yeah, there, there would still be 3,000 kids on campus. Yeah, yeah. We, we, uh, I think we'd play eight on eight if we were in Texas. Is that uh... No, you would actually play in a smaller athletic division because the high schools around us are about that size. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, my old high school, the high school I graduated from, where I actually did my student teaching, is about 2,300. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the rest of the high schools around us are roughly that size. Yeah. They're normal size yeah. you know so for us 2000 is a normal size yeah whereas in massachusetts <laughs> yeah in massachusetts i would say probably the average high school is is more like in the 1000 to 1400 student size and that's you know that's in the ballpark which is a and, good size yep. i mean that's that's a great size for a school i mean it's about you know 300 400 kids per grade i mean your your student body has the chance to actually know each other and and, and build community a little bit better than they can at a school like mine. Mm-hmm. You know, cause when my kids talk about their senior class, I mean, the senior class this year is pushing 1600. Yeah. And, and that's a school. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of your schools. Yeah. And you know, when, when we look at, um, you know, graduation and, you know, my, my kids will ask me questions about high school reunions and all of this. And, you know, they ask those questions that they can only ask adults who've been there mm-hmm. and I go, well, kids i mean your high school reunions are only going to happen probably every 10 years and and then of course they asked me well did you go to yours and i was like i didn't go to my 10th i said but i went to my 20th i said well did you know anybody i said guys i graduated with 900 other kids yeah. <laughs> i said i don't remember most of the people i graduated high school with because there were so many i said and chances are pretty excellent that you won't either yeah. <laughs> just because there's so many of you yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting dynamic because we're we face a lot of the same issues that you're talking about in terms of school size and community and that sort of thing. And, you know, it is just magnified that we're going through a lot of those same conversations in this what I you know, what you would call a normal size school, which in my area is a large school. Uh, but mm-hmm. we've got a lot of those same same conversations. So, 
all right. So we're going to get into this. I'm going to, I'm going to shift gears. You mentioned student teaching, so I'm going to shift you back. I'm going to dial you back. And like uh, my first okay. question I usually like to ask everyone is how'd you get into the classroom? So, okay. Well, um, I'll be honest. I haven't done anything but teach. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not one of those that came to teaching from another career, you know, as we see a lot of that now. Um, I, but I also didn't go to, to college to become a teacher. And so I became a teacher honestly, and this is going to sound really awful because I couldn't make it into medical school. I was pre-med just like everybody else. And, <laughs> and that is not a joke. <laughs> when I started, uh, when I started my gen chem class, my freshman year of college, there were 90 kids in that class because I went to, my university was very small, mm -hmm. um, it, about 1200 students. And that was it in undergrad. Um, and so there were about 90 of us in the class and nearly all of us were pre-med. Well, by the end of that first semester, there were 60 of us left. Yeah. <laughs> and so I felt very proud to be one of the 60. Well, then we went into to organic chemistry the next year and there were about 45 of us. <laughs> and then at the spring semester, there were 30 and all of us were pre-med. And I got to my third year of college and I was like, you know what? This is miserable. I hate it. <laughs> and I don't like, you know, being cutthroat competitive with these people. My grades are terrible. I can't manage my time. This is awful. What am I going to do? And and I actually ended up taking a, um, it was an introductory physics class because I hadn't taken physics in high school. My my science course background from high school, you know, even though I went to an, a, an outstanding high school in an, an excellent district, I, I made choices that probably have had a great impact on, you know, what I do now. I took biology, I took chemistry, and then I took AP bio, and then I didn't take a fourth year of science. Um, I ended up taking an elective class called clinical rotation, which prepared me to work in nursing homes as a um, certified nurse's assistant. So I did that. And, and I did that, you know, during the summers in between school and, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, all of that thinking, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. This is going to be a great experience. And it was, I mean, I, I don't regret that at all. It was fantastic experience. Um, and I didn't, I did enjoy working with my, you know, elderly patients. But once I got through the grind of, you know, just the fundamentals that I needed to get into medical school, I was like, yeah, no, this is not for me. I don't <laughs> like this. What am I going to do? This is miserable. And, and the physics, the intro physics class really didn't help because it was very discouraging. The, the professor taught it as though it were a class for majors. And a lot of us in there were not mm -hmm. physics majors at all. In fact, that class didn't even count toward a physics degree. And, and I was making, you know, a D. I mean, I eventually made a C in there, but I think it was just through sheer luck and the fact that the professor was like, okay, you're trying, <laughs> you're trying, you're trying. Um, and I, there, I mean, and I can remember, I don't remember the date, but I remember the day very clearly I was leaving physics class and I was like, all right, I'm done. I can't, I can't do this anymore. This is, what am I going to do? Hey, I'll teach school. Everybody always said I'd be a good teacher because I had, <laughs> I had tutored people in high school and, you know, through government class and biology class and all of this. And I was like, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. Let me go across the street to the building where I know the education department <laughs> is housed and make an appointment to see the, the chair of the department. And so I did, I walked across the street, walked in. I was like, Hey, I need to make an appointment with Dr. Sykes. I need to, I need to figure out what I got to do to get my teaching certificate. And so, you know, it was, I mean, it was, it was literally a snap decision. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, after I had that appointment, I had to call my parents <laughs> and I was like, so, um, I'm going to have to spend an extra year in school, you yeah. know, after I, I sat down with the professor and, and we figured out what I needed to do 
to, to get caught up because at that point, you know, I hadn't had introductory psych. I hadn't had educational psych. I hadn't had mm -hmm. any of the prereqs yeah. for any of the education courses. And they were like, what? <laughs> I said, <laughs> I need to spend an extra year in school. Why? Well, I'm going to get my teaching certificate. Uh, are you serious? You know, because at, at first they were, they, my parents were, were hell bent on me going to medical school, yeah. you know, especially my mom. And, you know, it was funny, you know, for a couple of years after I graduated, you know, there were still times when my mom would ask me, well, when are you going to go back to school? When are you yeah. going to go back to school? Meaning, are you going to go to medical school? Yeah. No, mom, I'm not going to go back to school. I'm not going to go back to, at least not to medical school. No. And so, you know, my, you know, the chair of the department and I, who eventually ended up becoming my advisor, you know, made a plan. Here's what you've got to take. Here's what you've got to do. Here are the classes you're going to do. You're going to do your student teaching after you graduate. You know, being, you know, because having, if I did my student teaching before I graduated, it would have required an extra semester. So yeah. five and a half years at private school tuition rate. And, and back in the nineties, yeah. it was not cheap. I mean, it's certainly not cheap now, but it really wasn't cheap then either. And I said, okay, you know, I'll just do post-bac certification. I'll come home, live at home where the rent is free and <laughs> go to UT Dallas and do my student teaching through them because then I can student teach in my old school district. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how it all worked out. You know, once I graduated, I came home, got my student teaching set up. I actually ended up student teaching at my old high school. And the funny thing is, is the, the principal that set up my student teaching assignment eventually ended up becoming one of my bosses. <laughs> um, but she had actually been my high school principal. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, so it, it helped that I came home to do my student teaching because I, I knew the science coordinator, science coordinator had been my AP bio teacher, mm -hmm. the, the principal, that was my high school principal was still there. Um, my direct assistant principal was still there. She had just moved up. She was a curriculum principal. And so she was in charge of all the student teachers. And so it helped that, you know, I got to student teach where I had grown up in, yeah. the, in the school system that I had grown up in, which eventually, you know, worked in my favor when I started looking for full-time employment, you know, cause I student taught in the fall. Um, and my experience was, I think I only, I only student taught for 10 weeks and I'm, I'm sure that's different from state to state. Um, yeah. you know, and even the requirements now I think are very, very different, um, because I know there are programs now where student teaching isn't even a requirement anymore, yeah. which blows my mind. I'm like, what, yeah. <laughs> why are you putting these people in the classroom without any <laughs> practical experience? This isn't right. Um, and so, you know, after I got, you know, after I finished my student teaching experience, I was then hired to do a uh, long-term sub position at the high school across town. And the long-term sub position was for an AP biology teacher who was having hip replacement surgery. Wow. And so that was my first taste of what it was like to teach AP bio. Of course, that was on what we call the legacy curriculum, the yep. old, you know, march through the outline of this, this percentage of time you're teaching these things. Yep. Um, and after I did that for eight weeks, cause I was that teacher for eight weeks, um, you know, I was like, this is what I want to do. This is, this is what I want to teach. Yep. And I knew that at that moment, there was not going to be an opening in the district for me to do that because I knew who all the AP bio teachers were in the district at that time. And, and, and I knew that, that I was going to have to wait, yeah. you know, I was just going to have to wait patiently to, to get to do that. And so I, um, got hired to teach at a, another high school across town for the spring semester. And then I got asked to move to the high school that strangely enough, I lived down the street from now um, to teach pre AP biology. Yeah. And so I did that for six years. Well, then the 
fall of 2003, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who I used to work with at uh, Clark High School, which, is, which was the school that I worked at last. And this, I, I, I live in the school district that I used to teach yeah. in now. Um, and uh, he calls me and he says, hey, you know, we're going to have an opening in the fall. Are you interested? And I was like, well, it depends. What is it? And he says, well, we need an AP and IB biology teacher. I said, well, let me think about that for a minute. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it, and it was quite literally that fast. And so the wheels started, you know, moving forward on interviews and all of this. And by the end of the fall semester, I already knew that yeah. I wasn't going to be back in the next school year. Um, and so I've been at my current campus ever since. And, and it's probably been the best move for me professionally. You know, going from you know, the district that I had only, the only district I had ever known growing up and, and, you know, for my, for the first part of my professional life, it was a little scary to move to another district that was in the process of growing and in the process of becoming what it is now. Yeah. And so, you know, it was, it was a good time to move also because my current district was in the process of growing and, and, and becoming, you know, more renowned and, all of this. And so I think the move was very well timed, you know, and I've had opportunities in my current district that I would not have had in my former district had I stayed. Yeah. In fact, I think if I had stayed in my former district, I would probably still be teaching freshmen, which is not terrible, <laughs> but not what I wanted to do for the rest of my career, you know? And, and so I'm glad that I made the move when I did. Um, you know, I don't think that if I had stayed in my previous school district that I would have you know, gotten to do presentations at the national level. I don't think I would have gotten to do textbook authoring. I don't think mm -hmm. I would have gotten to do, um, you know, the, what else, the, the online, the, the teaching of the online course for Rice University. Yeah. I don't think I would have gotten to do that either. Yeah. And so it's, it's been, you know, the, the ride has been kind of wild. And the funny thing is, is, you know, here I am at year number 20, and I didn't think I'd make it this long, to be <laughs> honest. I really didn't. You know, that, that first few years, you know, it's funny when I talk to brand new teachers or people who are thinking about becoming teachers, you know, I tell them, look, you know, those first few years are very hard. You know, they're very, very hard. I said, I almost quit <laughs> my yeah. first three years. I nearly quit because I hated it so much. And of course, the question is, well, why did you hate it so much? I was like, there's so much <laughs> that you're not prepared for. It's kind of like being a parent. Yeah. You know, at least what I imagine being a parent is like, because I don't have children of my own. But there's so much that they don't tell you about, you know, teaching your own classroom. Because even student teaching, while student teaching is good preparation, it is not perfect. You know, because you're, you're working with somebody else's students. You you typically do not make parent contact mm -hmm. as a student teacher. Um, you are not the one that is held responsible for grades. You're, I mean, there's so much you're not held responsible for. It's to me, student teaching is almost like play teaching. Yeah. Um, because it's not the same as being the adult. <laughs> you know, it's it's not the same. But it is good preparation for at least going through the motions of teaching. Yeah. I think, you know, because, yeah, you have to make lesson plans and you have to execute them and you have to set labs up as a science teacher and all of that. It's good practice for that sort of thing. It's not good practice for the un, the unwritten things that they don't ever tell you about. You know, it's like, oh, by the way, you've got this meeting to go to and this meeting to go to and this paperwork to complete. And, and <laughs> oh, yeah, you've got to do this book study and go to this professional development and this and this and this. Oh, yeah, never mind grading. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, so student teaching, I don't think prepares you adequately for all of those things, but it does give you a, a pretty good idea of what to expect, you know, which is why to me, um, these alternative certification programs that exist, at least I, I know they've, they've got to exist in Massachusetts. They exist yeah. here too. And that some of them are set up such that the person who goes through them doesn't even get that experience. You know, they don't get the experience of lesson planning and then executing and, you know, they, you know, practice, they, they go through the coursework and then they're thrown into a classroom yeah. you know, without any practical experience prior to that. And that, I, that bothers me yeah. a lot. I mean, there are some people who are very good who, you know, we, we do get some teachers that come through programs like that, that end up being outstanding. In fact, the, the lady that teaches next door to me had been a dental hygienist for several years and wanted something different and decided to become a teacher. And she, she teaches anatomy for us and she is fantastic. She is amazing. But I think that has a lot to do with, you know, the, her personality and, and how she approaches the work that she does, you know, and, and, you know, not everybody is a good planner. Not everybody is a good, you know, executioner of their plans, you know, of, of whatever plans they make. Um, you know, a lot of what teaching is, I think, comes from the personality of the person who's doing it. And that's something that, you know, I don't think is accounted for enough when we talk about what good teaching is. I mean, because when you, when you think about what good teaching is, yes, there's a lot of pedagogy and there's a lot of research that goes into pedagogy, but all of that doesn't really mean anything if you have somebody whose personality is just, you know, flat, you know, because, you know, and you and I have both worked with people who are incredibly smart, incredibly intelligent, <laughs> but who can teach their way out of a paper sack, you know? I mean, I've worked with people like that. They're really smart. They're brilliant. They know their stuff, but boy, howdy, they cannot teach. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, and just because you know a whole lot of stuff doesn't mean that you can teach it because there, I really think that there is, it, it's an art to be able to take something as complex as somebody's subject field and, and be able to distill it down to its essence so that somebody else who doesn't know anything about it can understand it. Well, it's yeah. it's an interesting. You bring up the whole personality thing, which I I think mm -hmm. of um, sort of Mike, our career. It took me probably you know eight ten years because I you know like you started teaching at a very young age. It took me eight ten years before I really my personality of who I was came across in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I think there was a um, a reserved, guarded, uh, mm -hmm. protected personality from me that came through in those first few years. Like, uh, you know, when you're 20, you know, you're in your twenties and you don't look particularly all that different than the kids. And, you know, uh, especially when you're teaching high school. <laughs> yeah. And you've got that sort of guardedness. I know that for a long time, um, I, I was very, there was a, a very much a, a division between sort of my personality in the classroom and my personality out of the classroom. And it wasn't until I taught for several years that I started to let that down. And, in a lot of ways, I think that the opening up of my personality the last handful of years mm -hmm. is like a freedom of getting old. Like I get, yep. <laughs> there's no mistake of like the kids aren't going to mistake me for their friend anymore. Like that, exactly. that window of time is done. And so like now I get to just be like the, the grown up in the room and have yep. that personality. And that's, that's fine. Um, and I think in some ways, one of the things that you learn, and I didn't do a traditional student teaching myself. I, um, I got hired mm -hmm. on like August 28th. Uh, to teach in, oh, wow. <laughs> to get to, to teach an 80% position. Now I had been accepted 
into a, a master's of education program and I had taken some of the background education classes. So I was, uh, you know, I guess the phrase is certifiable uh, for taking a, uh, <laughs> taking a job. <laughs> I think we all are. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I had it all lined up and I had a few classes along the line, but I had not done my student teaching and I took this 80% job and actually as part of it, they agreed that my other 20%, I was going to go in and student teach in yeah. another teacher's classroom for one of those to help me get to my certificate by mm-hmm. the time I got through that year. Um, but even then, you know, like I did, I got a lot of that modeling that you get in student teaching where I went in, they, somebody else set up the curriculum for me. They, they gave me the syllabus. They, they guided me. I worked sort of in partnership with another teacher so that they could sort of show me the ropes in a lot of way model how they set classrooms up, which I think is one of the advantages of student teaching is you get a model of this is somebody who's been doing it for a while and this is how they line it up. Mm-hmm. And they model that for you. Now, that's not it's kind of like, you know, I, the the thing that popped in my head as you were talking was it's kind of like when I show, you know, one of Paul Anderson's videos, like mm-hmm. Paul Anderson's videos are great. Uh, yes. he, Paul is great. He has these amazing videos, he, but he doesn't explain things the way I do. So, some, right. so sometimes like I use his videos to fill in a gap because like, mm-hmm. you know what? My kids need a little extra, need one more, you know, one more bite at the apple before they take the test. So I'm going to share out this video. Mm-hmm. I'm going to post this thing. But if it's really something I think it's really important, I make my own video. Right. Um, because as good as his videos are, and mine are not going to be as polished and they're not going to be as professional, they're going to be my personality. And so mm-hmm. my kids are going to see my videos with my personality and that there is a, there's an advantage there and there's not to take anything away from Paul's videos because I, they've saved my bacon a handful well, of times. They are fantastic. I mean, but, but you're right. I mean, you, the kids are going to be, the kids see you every day or every other day, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, they're not going to see Paul, they're going to see you. And so I think from the student perspective, they're going to expect to, to hear what your take on mm-hmm. a topic is, you know, you know, it's, it's funny. I use Paul's videos. I kind of frame what I teach my kids around his videos, because the way I look at it is he's aligned them to the essential knowledge statements. Mm-hmm. I am not going to reinvent the wheel yep. when somebody else has invented it for me and has done a really good job <laughs> of, of inventing that wheel. Um, so I fill in the gaps when the kids come to class, you know, because the way my class is structured it's a flipped blended classroom, I guess now is what I would call it because now we use a learning management system, um, which we didn't have three or four years ago. I think this is our third year with it. Um, And so when the kids come in, you know, after they've watched Paul's video and have had notes, you know, that they've taken in their notebook, um, you know, we talk about, okay, well, let's, here's a practice problem based on the things you saw. Let's kind of work out where you're still struggling. You know, what are you, what, what is still not clear to you? What is, you know, what questions do you have? You know, that kind of thing. And so that's how I go in and fill in the gaps. Now in my IB course, because there's not as much out there for IB students as there is for AP students. Mm -hmm. In my IB course, I do make my own videos, but I base the videos off of PowerPoint presentations that another teacher has already made. Mm -hmm. You know, because again, the way that this particular individual is done, his name's Chris Payne. He's got a website called Bionology. He's aligned everything to the IB, what they call understandings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he's aligned everything to those understandings. And they're amazing presentations. And so I go through and I selectively edit, you know, the things that I know my kids are going to need. Because my I don't know if you're familiar with the IB program at all. A little bit. Uh, 
we we at my campus we teach SL biology, which is standard level, which is typically a one year course, and then higher level, which is HL, which is a two year course. Currently, I teach the SL course. Um, they run the same curriculum for the first six topics, and then HL does an additional year of mm -hmm. information. Yeah. Um, and so I use Chris's stuff to produce videos for my SL students. Um, you know, just to get them on the same, you know, get them in the, to, to teach the course the same way I teach my AP course. But for these kids, it's more of a time issue because we, you know, in IB, we have a certain number of hours that we have to teach the kids and it's 150 hours for an SL course. Well, I don't have 150 hours with my kids. So I do as much online with them as I can. Yeah. That, that way I can spend time in class doing science yeah. with them. <laughs> you know, because I, I would much rather spend the time, my in-class time, my precious in-class time that I have with them, you know, having them do science than sitting and listening to me talk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, look, if I can, if they can Google it, then then they don't need me to tell them how to do it in class. They don't need me to, to talk about it in class. They can just go online and look it up. Yeah. You know, but the doing science part, they can't Google that. You yeah. know, they, they've got to get their hands dirty and they've got to, they've got to make their heads hurt, you know, with thinking about, well, why doesn't this work and what can we try? And, and, and we didn't get the answer that we expected. Well, of course not kids. That's not what science is about. <laughs> Way <laughs> science messier is not than that. about getting the right answer, yeah. <laughs> you know? And unfortunately I think, oh, you know, the, 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 the shift in teaching science the way we teach science because I'm, I'm sure i you know when i was taught science back mm -hmm, in the day mm -hmm. it was not taught nearly like it is now there there i mean when i think about how i first started teaching compared to what i teach now and how i do it now i'm like man i was terrible <laughs> <laughs> i was really awful no you were you were just you were excellent at doing something very very different you were teaching the history of science the information that already exists about science, but you weren't having your students practice science. No, they were not. Yeah. Oh my gosh, no. Because yeah, I'm, yeah. And, I, and I say that speaking, as I'm saying it to you, I'm saying that to me, because mm -hmm. I, I feel very much the same way. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna transition you, because you are opening the door right in for me to talk <laughs> about the bill. Yes. The, uh, so, t so like one of the things you posted, and again, I like number like 112. Why I was mad that I didn't go to NABT this year is I know <laughs> that I know that you had something where you presented about the biology interactive learning log, mm -hmm. uh, which is your bill. So first, like yes. let's talk about the genesis of the bill because okay. I I know that other people yes. use interactive notebooks. I use an interactive notebook with my alternative program kids. Um, mm -hmm. I do it. Uh, it's it's very uh, I, I would say I have a haphazard approach to uh, interactive uh, notebooking with that group partly because of the nature of the group it's a very yes, transitional yes, it's, it's a transitional group and the group needs different things at different times and so right. I use the notebook in different ways and I I'm intrigued by your approach how did it start and then like what does it look like when you're using it in your class okay well um I first got introduced to interactive notebooking by a friend of mine in graduate school. And so we were, this, this had to have been 10 years ago now. And, um, you know, she comes to class one night with this notebook and she's like, you got to see this. And I was like, okay, what is it? So she puts it in front of me and I'm flipping through. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> and it was, you know, at the time she had taught it uh, to what we call early college high school. You know, the kids who attend those schools complete their last two years of high school and their first two years of college tuition free. Wow. Um, because they're on a community college campus. 
And so, you know, she used, and they were also an AVID campus. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with AVID. Um, I know uh, a little bit of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, one of the, one of the key components of, of learning and teaching an AVID program is using an interactive notebook. Yeah. And so, I was, you know, I'm flipping through this and I'm like, man, this is really cool. And of course, at that time, phones didn't really have good cameras. And so I took <laughs> pictures. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, this is really great. I want to do this with my kids. And so I spent a year researching and learning and, and, and trying to figure out how could I make this thing work for me and my students. You know, so before I even implemented it in the classroom, I, I set out to learn about it first. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, you know, I, I sat down and I was like, okay, you know, let me learn about the history of interactive notebooks and this and that. Well, you know, I, I taught myself all that. I actually bought myself, um, what was it? A history Alive textbook, mm -hmm. because that's one of the places where they really used interactive notebooks was in history courses and history, the History Alive curriculum is set up such that, you know, it's the use of an interactive notebook is, is strongly encouraged and recommended. And so I started using them as a, you know, to, as a way to get the kids to kind of, you know, be more engaged with the material that we were learning. And at the time when I started, I didn't flip my classroom. I was still lecturing every day and, mm -hmm. you know, we were doing lab maybe once every two weeks and it was, I'm going to be honest, it was miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and that first year was actually really, really difficult for me to keep up with the notebook, you know, because I noticed that once I stopped keeping up, my students did too. Yeah. And so the first couple of years with the notebook were tough. It was not until the third year that I started, you know, when I started really using it, but I also started really flipping my classroom at the same time too. And so I used the notebook as kind of a way to, you know, I guess, facilitate the learning that goes on, you know, because I don't provide note outlines for my kids or anything like that. And, and, you know, not saying it's terrible if you do, but for my particular student population, I have seniors. Most of my kids are seniors. Yeah. I'm trying to teach them how to take notes, you know, so that when they go to college, they're equipped for, for knowing how to do that. And so, you know, I, I set out, I said, okay, I'm going to teach you how to take notes. Here's a couple different ways you can do it. You know, here's Cornell method, here's concept mapping, mm -hmm. and I'm going to model this for you. And so I modeled it for them. I actually sat down and did their homework one night just to see how long it would take, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it actually gave me new perspective on how much work I should be assigning every night. Um, just because I'm like, okay, if it only took me 30 minutes, that means it's going to take these kids an hour, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and so, you know, it's kind of evolved into this really fantastic tool that you know the kids take their notes in it when they come in every day there's a bell ringer activity that kind of reviews what they did the day before or the night before yep. um we now put all our labs in there you know at one time i did have the kids keeping up with two separate notebooks which was disastrous <laughs> because they would either remember one or the other but never both yeah um, and so i was like you know what we're just gonna put everything in here um and so it's it's actually become a really great tool for the kids. And, you know, one of the other things, too, is that, you know, parents will ask me at open house, well, what review book should I buy for my student? And I'm like, don't buy any of them. They're all terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're going to make their own review book. And I pull out all of my examples, you know, yeah. and my one student sample. I only have one, you know, because in the, I guess, seven or eight years that I've done this now, only one child has given me their notebook to yeah. keep as Example, you know, because the kids won't, the kids won't keep, they won't give them to me, you know, they'll take them with them and they use them in college. In fact, I had a former student of mine, he's at um, WashU 
earlier, I guess it was last year during his first year of school, he tweeted a picture of himself with his notebook, with his bill in class. Yeah. And he's pointing to the the Hardy Weinberg section of his notebook. He's like, <laughs> Mrs. Ferguson, look, I'm in my evolutionary biology class. And, I'm <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's fantastic. But why are you tweeting from class? Yeah. <laughs> Put your phone away. <laughs> you should pay attention. <laughs> I don't care that you've already learned this. Your professor's going to teach you something different that I didn't teach you. Um, I just gave you the basics, kid. Yeah. <laughs> I just gave you the basics. Um, you know, so the kids use them as reference notebooks, you yeah. know, in their biology classes when they go to college. You know, because most of my students do go on to study life sciences of some sort. Yeah. You know, most of them do. Um, not all of them. You know, I, in fact, I don't expect all of them to. The world would be a really boring place if it was just full of biologists. <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they do use them that way. And so, you know, we... We use them every single day. The only day we don't use them is test day. Mm -hmm. um, although the kids bring them on test day because when I grade notebooks, you know, I I check them every time they have a quiz, mm -hmm. you know, because I want to make sure that they're doing the things that they're supposed to be doing. Um, and then they have the option of turning them in for extra credit on test day uh, because we don't adjust test scores at all. Yeah. at my camp you know in 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 our course we do not adjust test scores you know if you earned a 50 you earned a 50 and then you get to come in and do test corrections okay um you know we're not going to massage your grade for you because it doesn't do you any favors you know you know mom and dad might see you know because that's one of the things i see when i when i see teachers saying oh i'm going to apply the square root curve really why <laughs> why are you doing that you know because in the grade book mom and dad see a 70 when the kid only mastered 50 percent of the content yeah you know, and then, and, you know, that's a whole other conversation for a whole other day. But, you know, those are the only times that I assess the work that the kids do in their notebook, you know, because a lot of the work that the kids do in my class, I'm sorry, it doesn't get graded. Yeah. Um, just because I don't think everything needs a grade. You know, we're trying to, we're trying to change the culture, at least in my campus, from a culture of grading to a culture of learning. And I know that that's something that's happening in a lot of schools all over the place. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's, it's not about the grade. It's about what the, what you've learned. Um, and so I try to impart that to my kids. Like, look, just because it's in your notebook doesn't mean it's going to be for a grade. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> you know, that's one, of those, that. one of the questions I was going to ask you is about the grading piece. So you've mentioned that you um, you can give it for extra credit. So um, the students do all of this work throughout, but it's just mm -hmm. literally just for themselves. Right. And, right. and then and you, so how good their notebook is, is dependent on them. Yeah. You know, and, and some of them end up being really amazing. Yep. And those are the ones I want to keep that I never get to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then some of them end up not being so great, you know, and I tell my kids periodically throughout the school year, if I see that they're kind of lax about keeping up their notebook, I go, if you had to review for the AP test today off of this, could you? And the kids are like, well, no. Yeah. <laughs> I said, exactly. I said, this is what you're going to use to review for the AP exam when you take it in the spring. You know, you might want to consider you know, the choices you've made <laughs> to this point to, that makes your notebook look this way. And so, you know, I, I, I don't shove it down their throats, but I go, look, Hey, here's this tool I'm giving you. You have to build it, but, but this is the tool that I'm going to give you to be successful in here, you know, and the kids learn real quick. They really do. And the ones that are really, really diligent end up being the models for the kids that are not. Yeah. And, and the ones in, and there are some students that, you know, they're, kind of they kind of do a halfway job but then they realize at the end of everything oh yeah i should have done a better job yes you should have yeah. <laughs> i tried to tell i tried to tell you 
Well, this this raised sort of two sort of points for me, both the beforehand mm-hmm. and the after uh, and the mm-hmm. after the test. So, walking in, let's say you're starting a unit. Do you have a loose vision of what uh, the bill will look like for a given unit? Like what the pages might involve, or is this yes. yeah? So, like you're like, all right, we're going into the this unit and we're doing you know evolution, for example. So mm-hmm. we're going to be hitting upon you know these learning objectives um, mm-hmm. and these skills and this sort of thing. And so this is sort of the arc of what I'm expecting the next you know, 50 and 20 pages or so. And so that you can, you can communicate and sort of model that particularly early to the kids. Sort of. I mean, because I'm building, I keep a notebook along with the kids Mm -hmm. for a couple of different reasons. Um, Number one, if they don't see that I'm buying it, they're not going to either. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two, if a kid is absent, then they can come and look at my notebook and go, Oh, Hey, I missed this. I need to go get this paper or I need to go get this or I need to make sure I do this. Um, Number three, it's kind of like a, a, it's almost like a scrapbook of learning for yeah. me for the year because I can go back and look at previous year's notebooks and go, oh yeah, that's what I was doing on this day. <laughs> oh, that's what we did. Oh no, this wasn't very good. Let's not do that again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, a tangible documentation yeah. of all the lessons that we did, all the, all the activities that we did, which is really, really helpful when we sit down to plan the unit, you know, cause now, you know, I have a partner, um, I, you know, when I first started at my school, I, I was it. I was the one woman show for 11 years. And then I got a partner because our numbers exploded. Yeah. Uh, we went from 150 kids in AP to 240 overnight. <laughs> and so, you know, now I've got a partner, which is fantastic. Yes. Um, you know, I love having somebody to work with because now I've got somebody to bounce ideas off of and somebody to tell me, no, that's really terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> or, hey, how about this? Have you thought about this? And it's more of that than the other. You know, he's he's suggested some really great things, which I think are, you know, fantastic. Um, but there is kind of a, a preconceived idea of what things should look like. Now, sometimes we'll tweak as we go along. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll try something and be like, you know what? the kids still don't get it. Let's try this tomorrow. You know, yeah. let's, let's adjust for this because the students yeah. are still struggling with this. We need more practice. We need more of this. And so we, we don't set it in stone. You know, it, yeah. it is somewhat flexible and dynamic, which is really nice. That's the good thing about um, the, the person I work with. He's, he's very flexible, mm-hmm. uh, but he also recognizes, Hey, you know, our kids are struggling with this or your kids struggling with this. Oh yes, they are. Well, let's talk about it and let's figure out what we need to do to, to help them with that. And so we do have kind of an outline of what we're going to do, you know, cause we give the kids what we call a mastery checklist. Um, it's basically the, the learning objectives written in student friendly language. Yeah. Um, you know, with a, you know, I've mastered this, I still need help with this. I forget what the levels were. We gave them a little document at the beginning of the year that had the, the f- like four different Star Wars characters on it, <laughs> where I think it was Ray was the first. No, it was Luke Skywalker, Ray, Obi-Wan, and then Yoda. And I told my kids, like, y'all are all going to start at Luke Skywalker. We're eventually going to get you to Yoda, <laughs> you know, at the beginning of every unit. You know, you've got to gauge where you think you are, yeah. you know, and some kids, I said, ideally, you do not want to be Luke Skywalker at the end. <laughs> ideally, you want to be either, you know, Ben Kenobi or you want to be Yoda. <laughs> you want to make sure that you know your stuff. Yeah. You know? And so we give them that as kind of a you know, a roadmap of here's what we're going to be studying during this unit. And so we kind of use that as a, as a way to plot out what we're going to be doing with our kids from, you know, day one until the end of the unit. Yeah. And then you mentioned 
uh, you know, to extra credit if they hand it in. And you mentioned test correction. So you don't adjust, right. you don't adjust the, the test score. Right. Um, the initial score, no. But they uh, have an opportunity to regain points back towards their final grade. You. Well, we do, we do test corrections for a couple of reasons. Number one, first of all, we let everybody do them. Yeah. Uh, you know, if a student doesn't, if a student passes, they, but they don't make a hundred, you know, if they didn't get a perfect score or, or the score that they were expecting, we allow them to do corrections as well, because it, I think it's beneficial for kids to see what they missed and why they missed it. Um, you know, just that, so that they don't make the same mistake twice. Yeah. Um, we also have a state law in Texas that mandates us as teachers to allow students to redo failing work. Hmm. And so we do, um, they call it the truth and grading law. <laughs> and it was, it was devised, I think five or six years ago because school districts used to have this practice where if a student was making below a 50, say for a, a grading period, that they would just automatically grant that student a 50 as a grade in an attempt to help the student recover credit for a semester. Uh -huh. um, and so there was a legislator, a local legislator who was like, yeah, no, that can't be. <laughs> <laughs> that's not right, you know, because then you're passing these kids along, which is, you know, to, to some degree, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, you know, and so the law was written such that school districts had to allow the students opportunity to redo failing work. And the state of Texas claims mastery is a grade of 70. Okay. Um, and again, the conversation about what mastery is, is a whole other, <laughs> you know, can of worms for another day, yeah. you know, cause I disagree with the state of Texas on that point. Um, mastery isn't 70%. I mean, if, if 70% is good enough, well, boy, don't ever go out to eat. <laughs> you know, they might only cook at 70% done cause that's good enough yeah. or, you know, fix my car to 70% good enough. <laughs> you know, that's what I tell my students when they say, Oh, it's just a 70. It's good enough. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not. Um, you know, and I let students before the law even came into effect, I allowed students to do test corrections anyway, yeah. just because I think they need to see what they're missing. Now, I will say this, you know, we we require students in order to be eligible to do corrections, we require them to come into tutoring prior to the test, you know, because we we want them to use it as we want them, first of all, we want them to be proactive learners. Mm -hmm. I would much rather you as a learner be proactive and get the help you need before you need it yep. than to be reactive and try to recover a failing grade because you didn't prepare properly beforehand. Yeah. You know, um, and, and so we encourage our kids, you know, encourage nothing. We tell them you have to come in to yeah. see us. You know, you either get together with your study group because we do form, we do make them form study groups or you come in to see me you know, or Mr. Naranjo, my partner, you come in to see either one of us for tutoring during the unit, you know? And so they, they are pretty diligent about coming in. We get about 50% of our kids coming in to do, you know, to do tutorials. And then the other, you know, another chunk of them go out and have study groups with their friends or whatever. Um, you know, we allow that to count as well. Yeah. And so, you know, in trying to encourage the kids to be proactive learners, you know, we say, okay, you have to do this and then you can come in and do corrections. And, and it's been very successful. Yeah. It's been, it's been a very successful approach for us. And so the kids will go and, and they'll come in for tutoring and whatever, and then they'll come in and they'll do corrections, even if they've made, let's say an 85, you know, so how we adjust the grades then from that point forward is we say, okay, if you got below a 70, 
then if it is mathematically possible for you to get a 70, the 70 is the max grade that you can get. Cause sometimes it's not possible. It just depends on how low you've got to start with. Yeah. Um, and then if you got above a 70, then we allow you to earn five extra points back. We don't want to raise your grade a whole letter grade, uh-huh. <laughs> but we are going to go ahead and reward you for coming in to at least check to see what you missed and why you missed it. Um, and so what that looks like for, for our kids is they sit down with their exam, they get their Scantron, which we print the correct answers on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we say, okay, here's your answer. Here's the right answer. Tell me why the right answer is right. You know, justify why this right answer is the correct answer. Yeah. And so we give them the practice of, you know, supporting their claim. Oh, well, this is the answer because, you know, and here's the thing in my notes that says this, you know, and I know some teachers are like, go find the page in the book. And I'm like, why? Yeah. That's, that's, that's a waste of time. Just tell me why the right answer is right. You can use your notes. You can use your book. You can use a friend. You just can't use me. Yeah. You know? And that's what I tell them. And they'll come in and it's so funny to listen to them talk when, you know, when they come in in groups and they'll, they'll well, I put that, but I didn't think, you know, yeah. and so <laughs> conversations that they're having with each other about the things that they've missed and why they've missed them. Well, that was just a dumb mistake. You know, it's, and it's funny to hear them talk about that. And I'm like, no, no, no. Or I've, sometimes what I'll hear kids say is, I'm dumb. No, you're not dumb. You just chose poorly. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> you know, don't second guess yourself. Yep. You know, usually your first instinct is a right one. And so they, uh, they, they get a lot out of that. They really do get a lot out of being able to go back and see what they've missed and why they missed it. And even, especially the kids that, you know, you've got those kids that are always going to come in no matter what. Like I have kids that make 98s that want to come in and do test corrections. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, seriously, kids, at this point, you're just getting those two extra points, you know, because we top them out at 100. Yeah. And I go, look, you're just getting those two extra points. But then some of them, you listen to them talk to themselves, and you're like, okay, maybe it's not just the two extra points. <laughs> maybe they really did genuinely want to know what they missed and why they missed it. And so, you know, we we do we do encourage them to kind of think about their thinking and, and all that. And we try to get them to do that a lot. We really do. But, you know, because high school kids don't really have a good grasp of, you know, what metacognition is. Yeah. And, you know, the more we can get them to think about their thinking habits and their thinking patterns, I think the better off they will be as critical thinkers and as scientists, especially in, in our science courses, you know, because they really have to stop and think about, well, why am I doing this? Why, why am I, why am I setting up my lab this way? Why am I designing, yeah. you know, experiment in this way? If I know it is not going to work, you know, <laughs> why am I doing it this way? <laughs> you know, and I, and I think that 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 definitely, you know, in an inquiry based classroom, there's a lot more opportunity for that. You don't have a lot of opportunity for that when every lab is cookie cutter. Yeah. You know, or cookbook. You know, I understand that there's a time and a place for some of those. I get that. You know, but I find the longer I teach, the less of, the less tolerant of that type of lab situation I am. Yeah, for me, it's it's running one of those labs. the The whole point of doing one of those labs is so that the students can learn that protocol and then ask their own question. Like yes. uh, beyond beyond that, they they have very little value. Um, exactly. Um, for at least in in, in my in, in my practices, I've been doing this a lot longer. All right, so I, I'm pushing. We're we're at 55 minutes, and oh, I think we've hit a couple of questions. So uh, do you, okay. do you want to? I, I know the answer, but uh, do you have time to talk a little bit about your sure. uh, your Dallas Fort Worth Metro yeah. Area AP teacher PLC? So yes. a few years ago, you started uh, a professional learning community uh, in the Dallas Fort Worth area, and um, uh-huh. I I'm really curious in that because I actually when I started teaching AP. 
four or five years ago, um, there was an existing group. It was hosted by a center out near where I live in uh, central Massachusetts. And then they lost funding a couple of years ago. Um, and even before that, like just because of their location, the times, the numbers of people who were coming to the meetings kept dropping mm-hmm. and dropping. And like it was a combination of a lack of funding. And I think that they were not getting great numbers, partly because mm-hmm. of location and, and not necessarily getting the word out and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, like how you pulled together this network and, okay. and what is it that you do in this network if Okay. Of teachers. Well, um, the group was started, I'm going to be real honest, for purely selfish reasons. Um, <laughs> yeah. At the time, I was the solo AP bio teacher in my school. And being a one high school district, I could also then say I was the only one in the district. <laughs> um, and at the time, you know, we were getting ready to undergo the redesign. Yeah. And like most other teachers at the time, I was concerned. I'm like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to implement this curriculum framework? Oh my gosh, I've got to teach all this math and, and I don't even know how to do half of this stuff. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I, um, you know, I remembered that there was a group up in the Northeast, I guess, New York, Pennsylvania area that um, I want to say it was David Kanofke and mm-hmm. Uh, the late Kim Foglia mm-hmm. and uh, Lynn Mariello, I guess and now she's going by Mariello, um, that those three had been, and Cheryl Ann Hollinger, mm-hmm. uh, that those four actually had been kind of the nucleus of the group that started in the Northeast. And they got together in the summertime and got together at one of their homes and, you know, had food and, and <laughs> basically sat, and, sat around and talked shop for the whole day. And, and shared, you know, resources with each other and all of this. And I was like, you know what? I want to do something like that down here. And I bet we could do it. So I put out a, I put out a call on the, uh, the college board community. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you know, if there's a group of people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that are interested in this, I would really like to start something similar to this. And, you know, um, a couple of friends of mine who are readers said, hey, you know, we're interested. Let's do this. Well, then BFW, the publisher, got wind of what we wanted to do. And they're like, hey, we'll provide you a place. We'll bring you goodies. You just get the people to show up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that first summer after the reading, uh, BFW actually rented uh, part of the Botanical Gardens, a meeting room at nice. the Botanical Gardens in Fort Worth for us and brought all kinds of books and, and breakfast for us. And we, the group of us that were readers, sat down with about 20 other teachers and we said, okay, here's the framework. Here's what's, here's what we've been told at that time. Yeah. You need to focus on, you know, focus on this, not this, focus on this, not this, you know, here's what the redesign exam is going to kind of look like maybe. And, and here are the things your students are going to have to know how to do. And so it kind of started off like that. Yeah. Then, you know, after that, um, we, we decided, you know, as a, as a group, okay, well, we want to do this again. Well, when do we want to do it? How often do we want to meet? Where do we want to do this? And so what we started doing was we started meeting at all of our respective campuses. We kind of rotate around. And so we've met at, you know, private schools. We've met at an alternative campus. We've met, you know, at smaller high schools. We've met at large high schools. Um, But it's generally the same group of teachers every time. And so every, you know, and, and we've had several new people come in and out. Um, but it's basically teacher developed, teacher driven professional development. Yeah. Um, you know, we sit down and we figure out, okay, what do we want to talk about? Let's talk about this. Okay. So it's sort of like the ed camp model. Um, mm-hmm. 
a little bit, um, you know, and we've continued the tradition of having breakfast and, and all of this. And, you know, cause we usually meet from nine to three on the days that we do it. Um, and you know, it's just a bunch of teachers getting together to, to sit down and talk shop. I mean, that's, that's really what it's, what it's become. And it, it's funny. You would think it's like, why are these people getting together just to sit down and talk? Because we don't get the chance to do it otherwise. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, our schools don't provide us the opportunity to do that, even within districts where there are multiple AP teachers, you know, from what I'm, what, what I've heard from my colleagues that teach in districts where there are multiple campuses, they don't have that opportunity to talk with their colleagues about, oh, here's the stuff that we're doing and, and this and that. And, and, and so they don't get that opportunity. You know, I'm lucky in that my district allows us that chance you know, we, we actually do get professional development time devoted to sitting down and collaboratively planning, which is really nice now that I have a partner, because for the first several years that we did that, I didn't have a partner. I was twiddling my thumbs. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Collaboratively plan with myself? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but so, and so the, the really nice thing is that this network of individuals, you know, this network of teachers is a great support system, you know, because we share resources, um, you know, with one another, you know, it's a support system, especially for brand new teachers. You know, we get a lot of every year, you know, the, we, we get some brand new teachers who come in and they're just poor things. They're so scared because they're like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do this. This framework yeah. is so big. And, and, and we, we, we kind of talk them off the ledge and be like, look, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, it's, yes, it's going to be hard, but it's not impossible. Look at all these fabulous things that we can share with you to make your life easier. And so, you know, we, we, we do end up being, you know, a support system for each other, which is really, really nice. And so, you know, it's funny, we, we've got people from outside of the state that have wanted to come (laughs) to our meetings. And actually we've had some folks down from, um, from Austin that have come to our meetings before, because they're like, there's nothing like this in the Austin area. And we really want to come. Okay. Come on up. You know, we would love to have you, yeah. you know, and so there, there are a couple of groups of people who wanted to start something similar in their area. They just haven't done it yet. Yeah. Well, I will and, tell you, there's times you posted it. And I'm like, damn, I wish I could go to that. <laughs> <laughs> Be a little well, bit of a yeah, commute. It's a model that I wish we could replicate in other places. Yeah. I just don't know how to go about doing it. Yeah. You know, I would love to see, you know, something that's completely driven by teachers, completely organized by teachers, you know, providing you know, professional learning opportunities for teachers, for their peers. You know, I just don't know how to replicate that model. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's, it's something I've wanted to give a talk about. I just don't know how to frame the talk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I really don't. I'm like, well, what would I talk about? I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, you got to figure that out and then you got to present it so we can all, exactly. we, can, we can all model That'll it. That'll be an ABC 18. Yeah. Unfortunately, I won't be able to be at the next one. So. Oh. So, yeah, I, I, as I said, I've, I've been a little jealous of it. Uh, you know, at first, it's very interesting because, like, I think we are, when I first started going in, it was right at that time of the transition. Mm-hmm. And I think the numbers of people who were going to it was kind of like, all right, I think the number sort of peaked up. Um, mm-hmm. I had started teaching AP just before the transition from the legacy curriculum to the newer one. Mm-hmm. And so when I came in, um, I came in and I did have a partner who had taught the AP and the legacy for a decade. So, and that's who I work with every day and it's great. Um, and then I think we made the transition and then the sky didn't fall. And, (laughs) and, (laughs) and then because it was difficult for people to coordinate and organize and get to the meeting Mm -hmm. and get at the time. And these, we were meeting at like three o'clock in the afternoon, um, you know, on a weekday. 
you know, at this place. So it really just, it was a case that people were, people had a hard time getting at three or three 30 and then spending, you know, two hours of time. And it was a very valuable time, but I think it it was, it was people, it's not that people didn't want to go. I think it was a legitimately challenging thing. I I don't, I think I was, I was on time to one of the meetings that that I attended. That would be tough. Yeah. We meet Saturdays. Yeah. Tend to get together. So I think what I need to do is I need to like rope, you know, somebody at a local college, you know, to say, here, give us a space <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and help coordinate this and then and then see if I could get a group of people to commit a couple of times a year to doing something similar. Right. Um, and, you know, I, definitely there's people who would like mm-hmm. to do it, but committing that time and blocking out that time is is a yeah. is a challenge. It's tough. And especially during the weekdays. So, but yeah, inspiring, inspiring. I'm going to have to think about that. All right. So um, I th- well, I'm going to ask you the question. So in the upcoming years, what are you looking forward to? What, what are you looking, what are you excited about in the next couple of years? Just continuing to get better at what I do. I mean, I mean that, I mean, and, and really I think that that's, that's what constitutes good teaching is somebody who's reflecting upon what they do and figuring out, okay, well, I did that great, but how can I do it better? How yeah. can I, how can I get even better than that? Um, you know, now that I do, uh, you know, I'm a college board consultant now, which I'm really excited about. And, and you, I'm looking forward to getting to learn from the people that I'll be teaching mm-hmm. and, and getting new ideas from them, you know, so that I can take those back to my kids and be like, all right, kids, we're going to try this. And, you know, just, just being able to, to try new things with them and, and, and all that. I mean, because, you know, I, I, said earlier, you know, I'm not afraid of change in yeah. the classroom. I'm really not. In fact, I like change because if I'm doing the same thing over and over again, I get really bored really fast. Mm-hmm. And the, the, you know, getting bored, you know, with what you do every day, that's dangerous, I think, because it, 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 it encourages complacency. Yeah. And, and that is not something that belongs in a classroom. No. It's, it's really not. Um, you know, I always said, you know, I, you know, I, I got asked, my mom asked me, well, when are you going to retire? And I'm like, mom, <laughs> I'm still a little bit away from retirement. I said, but the day, the, the, the day I know it'll be time to retire is the day that, it, that teaching is no longer fun. Yeah. But it, it's that, that, that I'm content doing the same thing every day. Um, Cause that's when I know it'll be time, you know, that's when I know it'll be time. And so I'm looking forward to being able to learn new ways to do new ways to do the same stuff or even just new stuff altogether that helps my kids to learn to be good scientists and to be good thinkers. Yeah. You know, well, I, I think you, you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the legacy of how we taught. And I think most of the people I talked to um, who started teaching, like when we started teaching, you know, in the mm-hmm. late nineties, early two thousands, we knew that we were standing in front of the room and we were telling kids things and we knew mm-hmm. it wasn't the best way to do it, but it's the way that we had been taught well, and, and it was the only model we had. And, but like, I don't know a single person who, who I've talked to who has gone through some of the same changes that you've gone through and I've gone through. Mm-hmm. We, that we went through that and we were standing there the whole time going, yeah, this is just not the most effective way. You know, mm-hmm. like there, there's there's downsides to this and there's got to be a better way. And so that reflective nature of being a scientist where you ask a question and then you try something out <laughs> and then you get a little bit of feedback and then you make some adjustments and, and that's sort of that approach to teaching that I think a lot of us have been taking. We were coming from such a place that needed change. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're oh coming gosh. from a place that needed so much of an overhaul. And so, you know, it's 
as you sort of said, that change isn't necessarily bad. And in a lot of ways, um, your comfort in how willing you are to change, um, it drives it. Also, how comfortable your colleagues around you are. Uh, yes. I, I find that like there's days where I want to go in and just like, you know, all right, I'm dumping the apple cart over. Uh, I'm like going to standards based grading like Paul Strode and I'm going to flip my classroom like, <laughs> like Paul Andrews. Like I'm going like, to, but truth be told, like if I did that tomorrow in my classes, my, my students wouldn't handle it particularly well. The parents wouldn't yeah. handle it. My colleagues wouldn't handle it. So it is, a, it is just definitely a reflective practice of taking the pieces that you, that you know that you can manage to change in your place at the time you're, you're changing it. Mm-hmm. changing those pieces and then using the constructive feedback to move in the direction that you need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it's, we're not doing this in a vacuum. Um, no. you, know, you teach in a larger school and you've got all of these other factors around you and you've mentioned the political climate around you. And I sim- in a similar way, if I start doing things that are way out on the fringe, something that is so out of the norm, you know, truth is I, I could probably get away with it. Um, <laughs> I'm a known factor. I've been doing this for 21 years. I can, I can sort of do what I want, but what it will be is it won't be a positive movement for change. It will be right. like, what is that crazy Matthew doing in his room? Well, he's doing that crazy <laughs> thing. Good for him. He's entertaining himself, but I don't know that it will have the positive impact on right. students and the inner colleagues. Cause the truth is, is that if you're adopting good practice, you want to refine that good practice, but you also want your colleagues to, make the same good pieces part of their practice. Right. Because because right. it's not enough just to change in one room. No, no. And I'm very lucky that I work in a school and in a district that encourages, um, you know, innovation and, 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 you know, new ideas as long as they are in the best interest of students. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I feel very fortunate to to work in a place that encourages that and and encourages failure. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, because let's face it, I mean, failure is how you learn. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, that's what I tell my kids every year, you know, the beginning of the school year. Look, failure is how you learn. If you never failed, you don't know what success looks like. Yep. And and, you know, I'm very lucky that, you know, I have administrators that support their teachers in trying new things, in trying different things, mm-hmm. um, as long as the end result is that this is what's going to be good for kids. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and I know not everybody gets to work in a place like that, which is unfortunate. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I feel very, very lucky that, you know, the things that I've tried in my classroom so far, you know, my, my administrators back me a hundred percent because they're like, okay, well, she's going to try this and yeah, it might be spectacularly terrible, but <laughs> you know, she's trying it because it's going to be good for kids, Yeah, you know, one way or the other, it's going to be good for kids. And so, you know, I, I, I wish that people could work, you know, that the teachers could work, every teacher could work in a school like the one I work in. Yeah. Oh, great. I, and I think that you know, it's funny. I keep hearing the same mirror, like, having these conversations with a variety of different people and I keep hearing very similar things, you know, uh, this, this freedom, it's a, it's a lot of, it's a lot to take back. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, um, there's, there's so many good teachers doing good things and so many good administrators doing good things, but there is definitely a tide, um, of, of negativity that sort of runs against public education out there that, that makes it, makes it sometimes like hard to see that. You can yes. very easily get yourself distracted by right. things that are going wrong. But it's so, uh, I, I said this to, to David Kanefke earlier this year, like, I feel very buoyed. Like, I feel very, like, hearing the positivity and hearing mm-hmm. the the good teachers 
trying new things, having the opportunity to try to fail and, 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 you know, try these, these things and saying it's, as long as it's safe for kids and as long as it's in the best interest of kids, that's what we're going to work on. And we're, we're going to allow it to be a little bit messy. Um, it's such a positive thing to hear and I keep hearing it over and over again. And so that makes me very hopeful. (laughs) Well, and I think one of the important things, you know, to touch on something you just said about all the negative press, basically that public schools get, um, I think one of the important things to remember is that to combat that we as teachers in the public school system have to be very, have to be advocates for ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, and we, we have to be louder than the noise. Right. And, and, and we have to be the ones saying these positive things about the things that are going on in our schools and the things that are going on in our classrooms, you know, because otherwise the, the only message that the public is going to hear is, oh, public schools are terrible and, and the system is broken and, and, and this and that. And if we don't speak up, you know, for ourselves, then, then nobody's going to get to hear about all the great things that we do. You know, public school system can't be broken if it's existed for this long (laughs) and, and, and has turned out, you know, as many good people as it has, it can't be that broken. I mean, no, it is not a perfect system. Nothing is, but, um, you know, if, if we don't talk about how great our schools are and the great things that our schools do for kids every day (laughs) and our communities, then, then of course people are only going to hear the negative, you know? And, and teachers need to be encouraged to do that. You know, they need to be, they need to feel empowered to talk about, you know, the great work that they do. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I have a Twitter account is so that I can say, look at these cool things that my kids get to do every day. Yep. You know, look at the stuff that my kids are doing. You know, I'm actually kind of excited for school to start again so that we can do that because I've got some cool stuff planned. Yep. <laughs> and I want people to see, look at this great stuff that my kids get to do, yeah. you know, and then these kids are learning and, and, and all of this and look at the stuff that I get to teach my kids. I'm super pumped about this. And so, you know, I, I want people to see that. Look at the great things my school does. Yeah. Look at the great things my colleagues and I do. You know, we have to be, we have to be the ones saying that nobody, if, you know, it's like my mom always used to tell me, if you don't teach your own horn, nobody else will. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that is certainly true, you know, of the public schools. I have a I have a Twitter account so I can see what great things you're doing in your classroom uh-huh. too. So <laughs> learn from you and learn from from others. Uh, it, as you said, excited about school. So yesterday I was uh, I was in my classroom. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, dropped my sister off. She was go- driving. She was going back to. She teaches. She's a professor in Louisiana at Tulane, mm-hmm. and she was staying with us over the holiday. So I drove her back, and um, so I had to drive out into Boston. And it turns out that my school is sort of on the way back from Boston. So um, <laughs> I loaded up some stuff. And even though it was snowing, I was in my classroom. So in the morning before I go in, I I, I texted uh, my, my partner who I teach at AP Biology with. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to swing by the building sometime around two tomorrow today. Uh, are you uh, are you around? He's like, I'm in the room cleaning right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so like we we exchanged a little bit so he did a little bit of, for what his stuff was he was setting some mm-hmm. things up and then i came in afterwards and set some stuff up and and uh <laughs> i was like yeah we were terrible at not at taking vacations and staying out but <laughs> i came to the realization that i teach first period the day we get back and mm. I, I i know you have a i think you have a professional development day the day yeah, before Monday we do. yeah so we do not we go back on tuesday and i teach first period on tuesday and i'm having mm. my kids set up a lab and um and i was thinking about it and i was thinking about the logistics and thinking about the time frame and we start at 723 and oh, i was gosh. like and i was like huh really? i wonder if yeah we are super early where that may be changing soon we're that's we're in talks about that but i um uh, 
But I was looking at it and I was sort of thinking about the logistics. I'm like, all right, if I get there, how much? And I was like, I could make this a lot less stressful on myself if I, <laughs> if I just go in and spend like, you know, just spend an hour, lay some stuff out, just sort of see where everything is and get some stuff queued up so that my kids can come in. And um, we're mm-hmm. going to be setting up the... Uh, the uh, uh, artificial selection uh, plant lab. Ah, uh, the fast plants, yes. Yeah, we're going to do it. We're actually doing ours with the Rabbitopsis um, because, oh. which takes a little bit longer, uh, mm-hmm. but we we do a lot of um, uh, model organism stuff and uh-huh. a Rabbitopsis is one of our model organisms. So okay, very cool. Both, uh, very cool. both wards. I've never worked with those in a classroom before, so. Yes, so. Ohio State does, we've been doing a, a lab with Ohio State. They do, uh, Ohio State has a, um, a whole uh, outreach where they will send you a Rabbitopsis seeds. Huh. Uh, I will post that in my show notes. Um, yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, so they have this really cool, they have a handful of uh, free modules that they will send you the seeds for. Um, and so we've done this uh, gibberellic acid lab, um, which we've had moderate success. Last year, I feel like I made it kind of work. Um, mm-hmm. We've had some moderate success with that. And they have a couple of other ones that I would like to take. They take a long time. So it really, you yeah. have to sort of commit multiple months to, right. to doing any of these like long-term plant labs, but I'm totally on board with doing that. So I've been working with that. And this year I decided that I wanted to try to do the artificial sele- selection lab instead of that lab. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like the gibberellic acid lab is good. Um, mm-hmm. It happens very late for us though. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of close to the AP. I have my students doing some model organism and I kind of feel bad um, for my Arabidopsis model organism group <laughs> because like we, our other model organisms like fruit flies, we use fruit flies all the time throughout the year so mm-hmm. we use a lot of fruit flies we use some c elegans we do that so every other group has used their model organism in a lab whether it's yeast or um or e coli they've all gotten to see their model organisms in a variety of different ways really really, cool. really by the end of february and we were doing this arabidopsis lab at the end of march beginning of april you know like oh, wow. dial down time and so the kids are asked to design like our term four we have our kids design a model organism uh a lab on their own. They have to take sort of information and they have to ask their own question and they have to come up with a lab. And, you know, we do a lot of framing and that stuff, but really I felt like the Arabidopsis group the last couple of years, like literally it's like, oh yeah, here's this model organism. Now, now here's this one lab that we're doing and now design an investigation based off of it. And they've mm. done a decent job, but I, I do feel like I put them, that group under the gun a little bit more than the other groups. And so I was like, how could we get this in a little earlier? How could we try that? And so this is sort of my, my first attempt <laughs> at seeing how this is going to work. So I, I was thinking about how the materials were laid out and how all that pieces were going to go and how to get the three cases of water bottles uh, that they need to make their planters and <laughs> all of those things oh, out. Wow. Yeah. And I, like, it was just some of those like logistic things. Like it's not really that much stuff, but literally it was li- physically moving some stuff around first thing yeah, in the morning. Physically put stuff in place. So I was like, I'm just going to go in and set it up and, and make things run a lot smoother. So mm-hmm. that's great. So um, I follow you on Twitter. So I know what you like to do when you're not teaching, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> so when you're when you're not teaching, what do you what do you like to do? They say I'm 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 a reader. Yep. So say, although one of I haven't read as much as I would have liked to. Although one of my goals for 2017 is to read two new books every month. Um, and so I set up a goal for the break to read five books over break. I've read three of the five. I'm going to start my fourth one today. So I probably won't, I probably won't hit the five book by the five book goal by Monday, but that's okay. I'm closer to it now than I was when break started. Uh Um, I love to cook. Mm -hmm. I say cooking is one of my favorite things. It's kind of like doing science, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, 
when I have time, I like to travel. You know, my husband and I like to travel. And so, unfortunately, I haven't had much money to travel because we bought our house last year. (laughs) And so so now we're homeowners. (laughs) And so it's like all the money we make, it's like, let's go to Home Depot. We need to redo the bathroom. We need to do this. Yeah. And so I have a feeling that this next year is going to be spent redoing the house instead of traveling. But that's okay. Yeah. that's a it's a it's a great list. Yeah, I've I've seen that, and I know you're one of your picks is one of your books over the uh, there. So we'll hold yes. off on that for a second. But before we get to picks, do you have any questions for me? Um, say I have to think. Um, not that I can think of right off the top of my head. Yeah, you're gonna have to. You'll tweet at me later, so you can. Yeah, of course. <laughs> That's great. All right, uh, good. We're we're way too deep in this, so um, I... <laughs> so uh. So let's get to those picks of the weeks. And you mentioned your book. So Lee, what is your, what is your pick of the week? Oh my gosh. Okay. So Mary Roach is a science writer. And if you haven't read any of her books, um, she wrote a book called Stiff, The Mm -hmm. Curious Lives of Human Cadavers. I read that several years ago. I read her book Guts earlier this year about the digestive system. And she's just got a new book out called Grunt, which is about the science behind being a soldier. Mm -hmm. Um, And the approach she takes in this book is slightly, you know, it's, it's similar to the approach she takes in her other book. She's a bit irreverent when she writes, but uh-huh. this one, she's kind of dialed that back a little bit. And I think it's because of the topic that she's dealing with. Um, you know, the, the book is really interesting. It's, it's, it goes into, you know, the science behind, you know, why hearing, mm-hmm. you know, being able to hear on the field is important. And she gets personally involved in some of the research that the scientists do, like, I mentioned she she asked to be shot at on a paintball range at 29 Palms so that so that she can understand, okay, here's why hearing is important. (laughs) You know, if you can't hear over the sound of gunfire, this is bad because it could put you and your unit in danger. Um, You know, she I'd looked forward to reading this book after I read Guts, you know, because the book didn't come out until the fall. And like all of her other books, this one was a hard one to put down. Yeah. Um, and, and so if you're, if you, if you want to know more of the science behind why the military runs the way it does and, and how it does, I would recommend reading this book. It's actually a really, really cool book. Like the first chapter of the book is all about the clothes that the, the troops wear. And I was unaware that, that the army actually had fashion designers that worked for them, (laughs) but their job is actually super specific. It's like, they've got to design a fabric that is cool. It's, you know, you know, not waterproof, but dries very quickly. And, and, and all, I mean, it was just really interesting stuff. You know, the the end of the book is a bit dark, but it's because it deals with death. Yeah. Um, the, The last half of the book is actually really kind of, it, the last half of the book was a little bit harder for me to read than the first half of the book was just because of the, the stuff she's dealing with. I mean, she's talking about here are these things that they go wrong. Men die. Yeah. You know, people die, you know, and, and she, she outlines some of the more gruesome deaths that have occurred because of, you know, failures and, you know, stru- you know, structural failures of submarines and, and, you know, stuff like that, but it's all based in science. Yeah. And you read that and you're like, man, physics is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> physics is terrible on a human body. Um, but there's also a lot of biology involved in the, in the book too. And so, you know, I, you know, as somebody who, who enjoys both physics and biology, I'm not so much a chemistry lover. I'm really not. I appreciate chemistry, <laughs> but I love physics and biology more than chemistry. Um, this was actually a really, really great book to read. And so I highly, highly recommend any of her books actually. Yeah. 
um, they're and they're just fun books to read. Yeah, I um, I, I read Steph. Um, I read her other book, uh, Spook. Uh, I she, haven't read that one. That was a, a really fascinating discussion of the afterlife and then sort of uh, paranormal uh, paranormal claims. I think would be the appropriate mm-hmm. way of describing it. Uh, I actually have uh, I have Packing for Mars as well. Uh, I was going to say I need to read that one, especially since I just finished reading The Martian. Yeah, <laughs> and. Oh, which I, was also awesome. <laughs> yeah, I read The Martian and it was my intent to read Packing for Mars afterwards, but I have not yet. So I think that's my my next book from her is going to be Packing for Mars, but because uh, I have that sitting on my shelf in my list. But yeah, excellent writer. Um, I, I, I'm curious about like how a curriculum, you could do The Martian and Packing for Mars in a back-to-back. That'd be yep, really fun. Could. That'd be a that fun. That would actually be a really cool unit too. Yeah, that'd be a really cool curriculum. I got to get a, some teacher to do that and then we can do the bio on the side. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, so my pick is something I totally stole off the National AP Biology Facebook group. Um, yeah, I'm super <laughs> pumped about this one, actually. Yeah, like, yes! yeah, I saw this. And <laughs> so uh, uh, many people know about the National Center for Case Studies up at the University of Buffalo, and many people know about the HHMI. Um, mm-hmm. And this week, I, uh, or I guess it was last week, I saw a document that came across um, on the Facebook feed that talks about a pairing of mm-hmm. the National Center for Case Studies with HHMI resources. So basically what this is, is if you go to the um, the National uh, Center for Case Studies website, um, you can get access to all of their case studies for free. You do need to be vetted and pay a small fee. It's uh, $25 a year yeah, uh, to get the the answer keys and uh, the teacher guides and that sort of thing. It's a, it's a very minimal fee associated with that just to help them keep their, their lights on. Well, uh, especially for all the all the stuff they put out. Oh yeah, it's an amazing. It's it's well worth the twenty five bucks. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and and but what now they've done is they've now started to put in their um, videos and or supplemental materials. They have put links to specific HHMI bioactive um, biointeractive materials that will support certain case studies. So um, I have posted a link uh, for thirty two case studies that have uh, support resources that relate to HHMI and. Uh, as we look at some of our um, curriculum moving forward, um, I, I know I shared this with my colleagues at my school. Uh, many of the biology are really actually quite excited about this because we've been we've been talking a lot. We're a, we're a very college bound, test driven school um, mm-hmm. in in much to our detriment. And I know uh, you've been involved in conversations online this past week, and uh, as you know, have, have I? And you know, I think anytime you have any conversation with you know Paul Strode at all, it ends up coming back mm-hmm. to uh, well, what's the what's the comparison between grades and learning, and how are yep. grades and learning connected? And we've been having a lot of those conversations in our building, and we've been talking about finding alternative ways to assess our learning objectives, our learning targets, um, without necessarily going to the test. How can we mm-hmm. help students demonstrate understanding and learning without necessarily having them take an end of the unit exam? And um, we've mentioned a lot of possible alternative uh, approaches that would start with a case study, start with a unit that was driven by a case, which would end with either some writing or end with a lab or end with something else, but just add a different flow that didn't have that traditional here are the textbook sections we're covering. Here are the PowerPoint notes. Here's the test at the end. How could we frame this? And we had sort of, you know, on our own come up with the idea that case studies might be a really great entree into certain subjects. To get this resource come along is a really nice time for us to get this along. I think it's going to have a real positive impact as we start to look at some of the restructuring we're doing in our units in the next year or so. I was, I'm pumped about it as well. Super excited. 
it's, it, it, I'm looking forward to using it. Yeah, I don't know when I'm going to sit down to look at all 32, but um, yes, <laughs> summer. Same. I think that's going to be the summer. Uh, the summer will be the time when we do that, or maybe yep. a, a professional development day later in the spring. So, well, thank you so much, Lee. This was uh, oh, every bit of the <laughs> the hour and a half I expected. <laughs> so, uh, but thank you so much for, for all of you sharing. Let me give my credits. Um, music on uh, this and every episode is by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. Uh, you can subscribe to this. Any place podcasts are found, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Uh, you can go to see show notes at lifeoftheschool.org. You can give feedback to me at at Mr. Matthew tweets or at life of school on Twitter. You can also follow at the biospace on Twitter. You should also go to her website uh, to get great resources. We didn't even get into the thing you posted earlier about your favorite uh, resources, which I, I may dig into the bottom of my show notes as well. Cause that's a phenomenal, uh-huh. that's a phenomenal link as well. Uh, so thank you again. Constantly being updated. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I, I won't, I won't lie. I, I was stealing something off that earlier today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, about uh, Winogradsky column. So, <laughs> so yes, thank you again. And uh, this will come out middle of January and awesome. I will talk to everybody soon. Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you.